Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Supreme Court of the United States started a new term this week. And, of course, there's a lot of cases uh, dealing with a host of hot-button issues. What should we be looking out for? How could these decisions impact the country and those of us right here in the state of Utah? Justin Collins is the associate dean at Brigham Young University's J. Reuben Clark Law School and a scholar of constitutional law and joins us on the line now. Justin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so as you as you look at the Supreme Court, uh, obviously there's a lot of those hot-button issues. Uh, but as you look at it, what are some of the things that are on your radar that we should be watching for in this new term of the Supreme Court? Well, I guess the big question that's on everybody's mind is now that there is a 6-3 to three conservative majority on the court, and now that the Chief Justice, John Roberts, is no longer the swing vote on the court, what is the conservative block of the court going to do with its uh, new numbers? How far to the right are, uh, are they going to move and how fast? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting thing. And one of the things that I've been wanting to ask you about, Justin, is uh, you had a number of the members of the Supreme Court just in the last month. Uh, they seem to be a little more visible than normal uh, just before a, a new session. Uh, and they also seem to be a little more vocal in terms of uh, some of their critiques of what was or wasn't happening uh, in the courts or what wasn't wasn't happening uh, in the country. Uh, is that something we should be watching for? And is that concerning uh, that things seem to be spilling out a little more in the way we expect it to with our politics? Well, it's a sign that the justices themselves are concerned. Uh, they don't it's not that they never speak out in public, but it's rare that so many of them in such a compressed period would speak out in defense of the court as an institution. They're trying very hard to uh, insist that the court is not a political institution uh, in the same way that Congress is a political institution or the presidency. And that uh, although they might differ in their views of the law, they're still driven by legal considerations rather than partisan considerations. Yeah, and I, and I do think that's the important message that we all need to hear. And while they uh, there may have been a little agitation, I think, from uh, some members of the court on both, both ends, by the way, uh, but there were also some very hopeful things in terms of, I think, uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, talking about her colleagues and how they they make each other better and that they learn from each that they continue to learn from each other in this process uh that that is good for the institution in my view i think so i think so too and they're sharing the message that they are a collegial body they might have profound disagreements about some issues but we need to keep in mind that the court decides only a very small 
sliver of uh, American cases, and they're the very most difficult cases with the very least textual guidance, whether from statutes or from the Constitution. These are cases that uh, typically the lower courts couldn't agree on, right. and so they come up to the Supreme Court. But even even so, the Supreme Court decides unanimously in roughly half of its cases. Those tend not to be the cases that make the headlines. We tend to hear about the five to four blockbuster blockbuster cases. But yeah. as an institution, they're significant agreement within the court, and they're, they're, they're collegial and respectful. And I think they want to, they hope to show something of a model for the rest of the country as to how you could still be uh, respectful colleagues and disagree with each other in civil ways. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you pointed out the, the fact that you really have to convince people that, yes, the majority of cases are decided nine to zero, and the next most common outcome is eight to one and then seven to two. And while we do tend to focus on the five, four, uh, you know, really close and, and hot button issues, uh, this is a court that tends to be fairly united in terms of applying the law, which which is the job. Right, right. And so let's look at some of the uh, the cases that are coming up. And again, these are uh, some of those that are going to be some of those five, four, six, three uh, closer things. Uh, I know we have some that are coming up uh, relating to religious liberty. There's also some around gun control and the Second Amendment. Uh, what do you see uh, happening in those in those realms? Well, in the religious liberty area, um, there are some cases that fit more or less neatly within a trend of recent cases. So um, Maine has a, a state law that allows administrative districts to contract with nearby public schools or private schools to take their students, or the town can pay the tuition um, at a public or private school that the parent chooses, essentially a voucher system. But it doesn't apply to uh, sectarian schools. So essentially, any school can receive vouchers as long as it's non-sectarian. And the complaint in that case is that this is a form of religious discrimination. Um, In recent years, the court has been sympathetic to to this kind of claim uh, that public programs that exclude religious schools are um, a violation of the First Amendment, at least according to these recent decisions. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the court continue in in that direction. The other case is, uh, is quite different. There's a, a death row inmate who wants to have a religious advisor present uh, during the execution and uh, to recite a prayer during the execution and, and to perform the laying on of hands while the execution is happening. And the state doesn't uh, want that to happen. The complainants are, are saying that there's no uh, no evidence suggesting that this will cause any problem at all for the state's uh, interests. Uh, and uh, that, that will be an interesting case because uh, the court in the last term in the Fulton case dodged the big question, which is what uh, – what is the state's burden? What does the state have to show in order to place uh, a restriction on religious exercise? Uh, under the Smith case from 1990, which is uh, still the ruling precedent, it, it doesn't have to show a whole lot. It just has to show that it has a, a valid secular pur- purpose, that the law is generally applicable, and it's uh, it's not crazy. It has some uh, some rational motive. But Smith is, has been quite shaken as a precedent, I think, in, in recent years, but the court hasn't articulated what's going to replace it. I don't know that this is a great case for doing that, so it'll be interesting to see what the court uh, what the court does there. Very interesting. Uh, in terms of 
Um, in terms of gun rights, the, the big case is coming out of New York. Of course, the court in 2008 and again in 2010 affirmed that individual citizens have a constitutional right to have a handgun in the home for self-defense. New York, however, has a pretty strict law about gun care, carrying handguns outside the home. And the complainants in that case are arguing that that, too, is a violation of the constitutional right. And um, there are uh, justices on the court that uh, seem sympathetic to a robust understanding of the, of the right to bear arms. But uh, it'll be interesting. The earlier cases didn't give a lot of guidance about what that uh, individual right to bear arms in the home might mean uh, for outside of the home. At the end of the Heller decision, Justice Scalia said this doesn't uh, prohibit the states from their traditional restrictions on uh, automatic weapons or particular types of weapons. And so um, that will be a a very interesting case and, and very hard to predict. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, Justin Collins is the associate dean at Brigham Young University's J. Reuben Clark Law School and a scholar of constitutional law. Uh, appreciate your insight on those cases. We will have you come back as we get closer. We do know that uh, December 1st is the tentative schedule in terms of the arguments over the Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, uh, which will also obviously have uh, impacts across the country as well. But, uh, Justin, we appreciate you weighing in today, giving us a little preview of where the Supreme Court is headed. Well, thank you. Thank you for hosting me. All right. Uh, We're going to go ahead and step aside for a quick bottom of the hour break. Uh, Your parents always told you not to talk to strangers, but guess what? Maybe we should find out why coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.